Hi comrades and welcome to another episode of Marxist Voice, podcast of the international Marxist tendency in Britain. Today we'll be listening to another talk from last year's Revolution Festival, this time on the Great French Revolution. The French Revolution was one of the greatest events in human history. Under the banner of liberty, equality and fraternity, the sans-culottes and peasants of France, over four years of epic revolutionary struggle, rose up, smashed the Ancien Regime and guillotined the roots of feudalism all across Europe. But such efforts could only extend so far. The revolution of the 18th century prepared the way not for socialism, but for the rule of the capitalist class. And the marvellous insurrections of the masses of Paris, who burst boldly onto the stage of history, could only be an anticipation of the class battles prepared by the crisis of the capitalist system. Nevertheless, the French Revolution is a storehouse of lessons for those fighting for communism today, as it reveals the mechanics of the revolutionary process in general and provides us with heroic models of revolutionary audacity, initiative and action. As Kiel and Kelliger will outline, and as the Bolsheviks knew well, an understanding of the French Revolution is required for all communists who intend to change the world. Without further ado, let's get into this week's episode of Marxist Voice, brought to you by the IMT in Britain. A country uh, with an increasingly hated monarchy wrapped in scandal after scandal, uh, a country beset with extreme inequality, with the living standards of the masses falling amidst the obscene enrichment of the ruling class, a country beset with an enormous debt crisis, debts that, that were in part a result of waging wars in the interest of the United States, with a ruling class completely divided on how to get out of the crisis. This is, of course, Britain in the year 2023. <laughs> but it's also France in the 1780s. But there's a crucial difference, because whereas today it is the capitalist system that is dying on its feet, in, at the end of the 18th century, it was feudalism that acted like so many fetters on the development of society. The task at hand was that of a bourgeois revolution. Now, by the 1780s, France was ripe rotten for revolution. The peasantry were crushed under a myriad of special taxes owed to the king, tithes owed to the church, and various obligations to the nobility. And all the while, 17 million peasants owned the same amount of land as half a million nobles and clergymen. And the rising bourgeois were, were hemmed in by the madness of feudal particularism. Uh, internal tariffs combined with uh, an absurd plethora of, of rules and regulations that varied from one city to the next. So that in 1789, a shipment from Lorraine to the Mediterranean coast would have been stopped 21 times and incurred 34 different duties. There was no national market in existence. And finding it hard enough to engage in commerce, the bourgeois found it even harder to invest in production because the guilds dominated manufacture in the cities. As the bourgeois deputy Barnave put it, the road is blocked in every direction. Yet the establishment of the colonies and the transatlantic slave trade, combined with the immense development of the public debt to allow for the powerful growth of the, of the bourgeois within these confines uh, through primitive capital accumulation. And this growing strength, in fact, was, was, was what allowed for the development of the philosophes, right? The, the people that anticipated uh, the bourgeois revolution and developed an the ideological tools uh, for the revolutionaries at hand. Now, the absolutist monarchy in France had risen uh, itself above society by balancing between the aristocracy and the bourgeois. It built a powerful state apparatus that it financed off the backs of the bourgeois 
which it used then to impose itself on the aristocracy. Yet at the same time, it held down the bourgeoisie's demands for political representation and maintained the social preeminence of the aristocracy. Uh, and this, this kind of balancing act had brought it to unparalleled power in the 17th century. But as the bourgeois grew stronger, this balancing act became increasingly difficult to maintain. And by the end of the 18th century, uh, the monarchy was teetering and the bourgeois were clamoring to assert their dominance uh, and free themselves from the shackles that restrained the development of their property. And in the end, it was an enormous debt crisis that would bring the whole rotten edifice crashing down. Now, having waged huge wars against Britain for the dominance, uh, domination of the Americas, France found itself uh, with a mountain of debt. In 1788, the interest on the, uh, on the debt alone amounted to 63% of the national revenue of the state. And not willing to repudiate the debt and strike at bourgeois property, which already reflected the growing strength of this class, the monarchy was forced to make an attack on aristocratic <coughs> privilege. It was their defiance that began the revolution that would annihilate them as a class. Now, France was also at the same time undergoing an agrarian crisis. Uh, a number of poor harvests uh, in the 1780s saw food, pro uh, food prices rocket. Uh, and this was a crisis that was actually compounded by the liberalization of grain that the absolute, uh, regime, absolutist regime brought in. Because what it meant was that in the, the good harvests in, in the earlier years, all of the surplus grain had been exported to the profit of the landowners and the merchants. And so when the bad harvest came, there was no reserve left to base themselves on. And the consequence of this was that in 1785 to 1789, prices rose by 65%, whilst wages went up by just 22%. So a, a huge fall in the living standards of the masses. And this brought about mass insurrection in town and country from March 1789 through to October, with the masses storming markets, stopping convoys of grain from traveling around the country and so on, and redistributing the grain to themselves in effect. And this, this, this happened all across France. And this awakening of the masses was to play an absolutely vital role in driving the revolution forwards. And indeed, this is actually the central feature of this revolution. As a local official, uh, official sorry, was noted at the time, the people are so disturbed that they would kill for a mere bushel. Amidst this widespread unrest, the aristocracy attempted to claw back power that it had lost to the, to the absolutist state of the preceding centuries. The revolution actually began with an aristocratic revolution. When called upon to pay taxes, they demanded the calling of an estates general, a kind of archaic feudal assembly that had last been called in 1614. The aristocrats imagined it would play out like it did over 150 years ago. Back then, the assembly uh, saw each estate, clergy, aristocracy, and the entire rest of the nation represented in the third, vote in blocks, which meant that the first two could simply combine to determine the outcome of the assembly. So having presented themselves as defenders against despotism, the aristocracy uh, was confident of imposing its will. Yet in forcing the convening of this estates general, they opened the door to the downfall of the ancient regime and the annihilation of them as a class. Meeting in May 1789, the Estates General was the, the first real showdown between the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy. And to the horror of the king and, and his nobles, the Third Estate refused to recognize itself as such, and on June 17th, declared itself as the National Assembly. The aristocracy had not understood the succeeding 150 years since the last Estates General, in which the bourgeois had steadily risen as a class. It was this change in the class balance of forces that gave it its confidence in representing the nation against the nobility. 
Now the king tried to tried to shut this down. He he, uh, he immediately banished uh, the the third estate from the assembly it was meeting and then pushed them into an, into an adjacent uh, tennis court. Where on the night of the twentieth of June they vowed that they wouldn't leave until they had uh, achieved a constitution. Three days later, the king ordered this unlawful assembly to disband. But the bourgeois stood their ground. Uh, you know, Mirabeau famously exclaimed as guards came to, to shut, shut this, uh, this illegal assembly down, saying, we will not leave except by force of the bayonet. And, and in, in the face of this defiance, the king relented, Louis relented, and even actually forced the aristocracy to join the National Assembly. But the first victory of the bourgeois would be guaranteed uh, in reality, not by uh, their own defiance, but by the intervention of the sans-culotte masses. So I think it's, it's worth taking time to understand uh, what this class force was. Now, the slow development of capitalist industry that brought about this revolutionary crisis was also crushing the artisans of the towns. It was these semi-proletarians that formed the bulk of the sans-culottes, who were the spine of the revolution. In the call for liberty, equality, and fraternity, they saw the opportunity to hold back capitalist development and achieve material equality. It was this fight for bread and an egalitarian social order that motivated them to heroic deeds. But of course, they struggled under an illusion because in reality, obviously, no bourgeois revolution uh, could be carried out without this key feature because the masses don't consciously fight to replace one ruling class with another. But the objective limits of the productive forces in this period determined that this is what they would achieve. Now, as I say, this first victory of the bourgeois in defying the king and the, the estates general would take the whip of counter-revolution and the intervention of the sans-culottes to secure it. The, now, having kind of reeled uh, in, in the face of uh, bourgeois defiance, the king composed himself and in, in the immediate aftermath, ordered 18,000 troops to be brought to Paris and Versailles and was preparing to set upon a counter-attack. <clears throat> The opening move of this was the dismissal of the finance minister Necker on the 11th of July. He was a financier, was seen as kind of the bourgeois man at court. And having seen royal troops uh, surrounding the city over the past few weeks, the masses saw this move as the beginning of an attempt to crush Paris itself. At once, the Parisian masses sprung into action and from the 12th smashed into the armories and the, and the, and the gun stores to arm themselves. And on the 14th of July, 1789, the masses learned that Bastille, who's a kind of prison come fortress, uh, was, was kind of home to a lot of, a lot of munitions. It was, a, it was a munitions depot in effect. Uh, and so they, they, they went along to demand uh, to, to be armed and they, they, they kind of petitioned the, the governor, Delaunay, to distribute arms for the defense of the city against this uh, royal army that was coming to crush it. And the crowd surged into the courtyard um, kind of by accident, basically. They'd accidentally left one of the gates down. And so they came through into the courtyard, have, have, having believed that they'd been invited and, and, and requested the arms to be delivered. But in response, Delaunay was panicked by this and ordered his soldiers to fire upon the crowd. At once, the kind of cries of treachery went up amongst the crowd, and, and so began this assault on, on the Bastille. But the decisive moment would come with the arrival of the French guard, because they had been sent by the king to put this, uh, this, this movement down, but instead they defected and turned their cannons on the Bastille, uh, which forced its surrender. And, uh, and, and yeah, like as, as a consequence, that the forces of the king basically, at that moment, at the intervention of, of the masses, became completely unreliable. The, the, the uprising of the Sans-Culotte had split the armed bodies of men and rescued the bourgeois revolution. The king was forced to back down, uh, withdrawing his troops and reappointing Necker as finance minister. 
And the fall of the Bastille lit a spark across France. The peasantry, having already been in a state of insurrection since April, now began to carry out the agrarian revolution. Bands of peasants would roam the countryside, setting fire to the chateau, seizing hold of nobles and forcing them to renege the obligations that they held over them. And they, be they began a process, in effect, of the land re redistribution themselves. They began to reoccupy the commons that had been uh, appropriated from them by the nobility and, and even by the bourgeois in the preceding centuries and so on. They carried out their own agrarian revolution. And this, uh, this mass peasant uprising gave rise to a phenomenon known as the Great Fear, where towns and villages believed an army of brigands was being summoned by the aristocracy to sack them. And, it, and across huge tracts of France, uh, the arrival of, of something like the arrival of a stranger into the village or you know, seeing like cattle being rustled uh, in the distance and people mistaking that for, for, for this uh, army of brigands would spark a, a mass panic where like, you know, the toxin would be sounded across the village and the, mass, the masses would pour out onto the, onto the streets and arm themselves, basically. And we can see here basically necessity expressing itself through accident. These, these 101 accidents all across the country of, of, uh, of just, you know, people mistaking something, uh, for, you know, uh, something for a, a, a threat of an army that didn't exist. What it does is it drives forward the bourgeois revolution because it forces the old apparatus of the old, old regime out of the towns and villages and the bourgeois creates militias all across the country as a, as a consequence of this. And uh, so we see, yeah, like the, this massive uh, driving forward of the revolution as a result of these myriad uh, accidents. But in the midst of, of this kind of, of the countryside up in flames and so on, the bourgeois now settled into the task of drafting a constitution to secure to them their domination of society. Recognizing their reliance on the masses, and that in the words of uh, the Vicomte de Noailles, it is not a constitution that the peasants want, they set about the abolition of feudalism. Uh, on the 4th of August, they passed the decree that the peasant could pay an extortionate amount of money to rid himself of his feudal obligation. But even this timid reform required the intervention of the masses uh, to push it through, because a deadlock had arisen whereby the king refused to pass the decrees, and having, having recovered again from his, uh, his latest setback in July, uh, in September he recalled troops again to Versailles. Once again, the, the masses, it was the masses that intervened to save uh, the revolution, and the spark this time was, a, was news of a banquet which had been held uh, by, by the king in which the revolutionary cockade was mocked and a toast was made uh, to the soldiers brought to Versailles. In response to this, Jean-Paul Marat, who's one of, you know, one of the most far-sighted of the revolutionary on the extreme left, uh, he called for the masses to gather at the Hotel de Ville and march on Versailles. And it was the sans-culotte women that responded to this. And they gathered on the morning of the 5th of October and marched to, to Versailles, demanding bread. And, and it's the, you know, the revolutionary elan uh, of these women, awakened to political life by the revolution, driving it forward once again, hauling their frightened king uh, back to the capital where the masses could keep a watchful eye over him. And it was as a result of this, again, another direct intervention of the masses uh, that led to the, the, the decrees of, uh, of August being recognized by the king. And the revolution had therefore once again been saved twice by this intervention. But now the revolution entered an impasse. The constituent assembly, assembly sorry, remained dominated by figures like Sieyès and Lafayette, who represented the interests of the big bourgeoisie. And they aimed to emulate their brethren in England. And that, you know, they, they want to establish a constitutional monarchy, arriving at a compromise with the king and the aristocracy. But the real problem for them was that they, they neither had any intention of arriving at that compromise with them. The revolution would either have to be completed or overturned. 
For now, the bourgeois returned to drafting their constitution and passing laws to guarantee, uh, guarantee them the untrammeled development of their property. Decrees were made uh, that, that uh, abolished the guilds and royal monopolies. Internal tariffs were eliminated. The grain trade was fully liberalized. Uh, church lands, a very important reform, church lands were expropriated and, and their distribution uh, was, was, be, was begun. Well, they were sold in lots, so the, the bourgeois were the main beneficiaries. But all of these measures took huge strides in establishing bourgeois property in France and heralded the kingdom of the bourgeoisie. Now, but outside this bourgeois assembly, there formed a number of different political clubs which reflected the various class interests in French society and served as one of the, the means by which the masses could exert influence on the constituent assembly. Most important amongst these <clears throat> was the Society of Friends of the Constitution, better known as the Jacobins. At the beginning, it was a broad organization incorporating petty bourgeois and bourgeois elements. Robespierre, uh, having been among the most determined bourgeois deputies in the Estates General, uh, would play a dominant role in the Jacobins throughout the revolution. To the left uh, of, of the Jacobins were formations like the, the Cordeliers and the Social Circle, who were in close contact throughout with the sans-culottes. Uh, and as the revolution ra radicalized, we would see that the Jacobins undergo a series of right-wing splits uh, as the left wing, uh, who were the most resolute defenders of the revolution, uh, basically came increasingly to the fore. All the while, uh, the Jacobins and the Cordeliers would draw closer together. But political factions were inherently unstable in this period because the revolution was blazing a trail. You know, Republicans became monarchists and allies became bitter enemies. As the that we see a process uh, of, of kind of ever greater political clarification as more and more radical measures uh, are passed to save the revolution, leading more and more of the bourgeois over to the side of counter-revolution. But in the early stages, those who wanted to hold back any further development and arrive at a compromise uh, were represented by the Society of 1789, formed by Lafayette, uh, Sies, and Mirabal. And whereas the Jacobins and the Cordeliers were mass organizations, I mean, at its height, the Jacobins had a million members, right? To put that in the context of, of a country in the 18th century, Corbyn's Labour Party only reached half a million, right? This is the scale of, of the mass participation in this. Uh, but in comparison to this, the Soci Society of 89, and indeed all the right-wing splits from the Jacobins would, would, would uh, behave in the same way. They met in salons and held banquets as their means of political discussion. They were thoroughly bourgeois organizations. Now, amidst this explosion of, of revolutionary papers and discussions on which way forward, the revolution found itself in this deadlock created by bourgeois timidity. And again, it, this would be broken by the whip of counter-revolution. Because since the, the, the beginning of the revolution, aristocrats had basically been pouring out of the country. And many of these emigres uh, were, were touring the courts of Europe to encourage foreign intervention against the revolution. And within France, those aristocrats that stayed attempted to organize counter-revolution with a whole series of, of plots. One was, for instance, was known as, as the Languedoc plot, uh, plot uh, whereby they would, they would try and encourage Catholic workers to turn against their Protestant bosses. Uh, but a turning point in this process re, uh, came on the night of June 20th, uh, 23rd, uh, 1791, with the king's attempt to flee uh, in his golden carriage uh, to Varennes hoping to reach Austrian-controlled Belgium and begin a plot uh, of foreign intervention against uh, the revolution. And as a consequence of this, the ground was immediately cut from uh, beneath the kind of moderate bourgeois because the illusion that a compromise could be established with the king was completely shattered. And at once the masses were outraged by this move, 
Republicans came to the fore uh, as, as a result of this, having kind of been on the, on the edges of the, of the movement up until this uh, point. And the masses now understood that the king was a mortal enemy uh, of the revolution and, and that uh, he would have to be pushed to one side. The Cordeliers and the social circle pressured the Jacobin Club in Paris to support a demonstration uh, demanding for a republic on the 17th of July. And Lafayette responded with a massacre, uh, bringing out the, the bourgeois National Guard to fire onto the crowd that gathered on the Champ de Mars. And in the assembly, as a consequence of this, this, uh, this, this showdown, the, the, there was another kind of, this was the first of the right-wing splits within the Jacobins, and we see uh, a whole group of them uh, like split away and form what is known as the Fouillons. But what is crucial to understand that at this moment, the masses had now moved well to the left of the constituent assembly. Now, with the threat of counter-revolution hanging over the, the, the situation, the, the constituent assembly achieved its, its fundamental purpose. The bourgeois had their constitution of 1791. And this constitution, of course, rejected universal suffrage. As a consequence, the legislative assembly that it produced uh, was dominated by the right-wing uh, fouillons. It was this assembly that gave birth to the idea of left and right. Uh, those most committed to the revolution sat on the left. Those most opposed to it on the right, though in truth, the most dedicated revolutionaries and counter-revolutionaries were to be found outside the assembly. But this absurd contradiction now of a bourgeois assembly pushing for a constitutional monarchy with a monarch hell-bent on counter-revolution continued. And, and amidst this kind of, uh, this renewed deadlock, uh, a faction within the Jacobins emerged around the deputies of the Gironde, uh, with Brissot as their leader, who energetically pushed for war. The Girondins saw the waging of a war as a way to kind of drive the revolution forward without having to rest upon the masses. They formed basically the right wing of the Republican movement. Now, these men reflected the powerful merchant bourgeois who stood to profit immensely from, uh, from war and were naturally distrustful of the masses. They found willing allies in this endeavor amongst the Fouillons themselves for precisely the opposite reason. They, you know, the Fouillons believed, you know, whereas, you know, the, the Girondins, they thought that the waging of a war would help topple the king, right? It would just bring about that process of a bourgeois republic with them at the helm without having to go through the, the horrible business of an internal struggle. But the Fouillons saw the exact opposite in the war. They saw an opportunity uh, to crack down on radicalism in effect. Lafayette imagined that he could play the part of a Sulla, basically, waging a successful military campaign and then marching back into Paris to, to deal with the radicals and establish his cherished constitutional monarchy with him at the helm. But what was the monarch's uh, response to this? Well, how did the monarchy perceive these demands of the, of the, of the bourgeois and so on? Uh, well, here's the, 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 the right, the, a letter that uh, Marie Antoinette wrote on December 14th, uh, where she wrote, the imbeciles, they don't even see that this serves our purpose. So whilst Lafayette imagined that he'd have a grateful monarch due to his uh, subservient position uh, in, in crushing the radicals, the reality was that he, he'd have been swept away by a successful counter-revolution along with everybody else because there was no compromise to be had. The revolution either triumphed or it was crushed. And only the left opposed the, the, the war in the end. It was only Robespierre who would make his famous speech in which he declared no one loves armed missionaries that would stand in opposition uh, to the, this, uh, this encouragement to, to begin a war because he feared that the revolution was playing into a royalist plot, which in, indeed it was in effect. Uh, and that the travails of war would exhaust the nation, leading to a dictatorship and the ending of the revolution. It's fairly prophetic in that sense. However, it, it, you know, in reality, it's doubtful that France could have actually avoided a war 
either way, because Austria and Prussia were already making war preparations of their own. They had agreed at the start of 1792 to put 50,000 men each into an invasion that they assumed would be straightforward. Even more importantly on this question, the French Revolution, due to its popular nature, served as a terrifying example uh, in a way that the, the Dutch Revolt or even the English Civil War couldn't. And so the maintenance of the, the ancient regimes of Europe, these, these aristocracies and, and these monarchies and so on, depended on the crushing of the French example. And it would, of course, with the backing of Britain, range seven coalitions against, uh, against the French Revolution and, and, uh, and Napoleon uh, in order to restore the Bourbon monarchy in the end. But nevertheless, under Brissot and Lafayette, it was France that would come to declare war on the 20th of April, 1792, which marked another decisive turning point in the revolution. The king, the Fuyalons, and the Girondins had all gambled that war would bring them to power, but it would bring about the common ruin of them all. The war surged the revolution forward because initially it went so badly. Treacherous enemies of the revolution, like Lafayette and a, and a commander called uh, Dumouriez, um, this is, um, you get used to this, I'm gonna slaughter the French pronunciations throughout, um, both of whom would, accept, uh, would, would actually attempt to launch coups uh, throughout, initially led these uh, French forces to disaster against uh, the Austrians and the Prussians. And the war rapidly accelerated the dynamic of more radical measures being implemented to rescue the, the, the revolution, which in turn, as I say, drived, uh, drove more bourgeois into the camp of, of, of reaction. And with the war going badly, the minister for war, Servan, a Girondin, encouraged the formation uh, of the, of the, uh, the Federers, uh, the kind of sans culotte uh, volunteers uh, for the National Guard, who would be sent to the front. In the summer of 1792, Savan ordered for these, uh, these Federers to be brought to Paris to receive military training before uh, being sent onto the front. And this was a decisive moment because it provided a powerful revolutionary reserve in the capital that would prove device, uh, decisive in the events to come. In this same period over the summer of 1792, the Paris Commune, which is a municipal body created by the revolution, came more and more under the sway of the Jacobins and forces to their left, such as the Cordeliers, reflecting the radicalization of the masses. In a process pretty much analogous to, the, to the, uh, the rise in influence of the Bolsheviks in the Soviets throughout 1917. Now the Jacobins themselves had been transformed as well. Um, you know, increasingly they came to represent the radical petty bourgeois having jettisoned uh, the, their bourgeois elements with the, with the various splits with the Fouillants and the Girondins and so on. And so, yeah, the, and, and they increasingly came to represent, as I say, this radical petty bourgeois who had been denied the vote uh, by the constitution of 1791. Now on the 1st of August, the Austro-Prussian coalition published uh, something called the Brunswick Manifesto in which they exclaimed that they would sack Paris if any harm befell Louis XVI. And with their troops advancing towards the capital, this served to inflame the masses. The king was, was seen obviously to be in league with these invaders. And under the leadership of, of radical left leaders like Marat, Inibert, and the more vacillating Danton, the Parisian masses took things into their own hands. And on the night of, well, it's gone now, on the night of uh, August 9th, occupied the Hotel de Ville and summoned uh, the head of the National Guard and executed him and replaced him with one of their own. The following day, it led an insurrection that stormed the Tuileries and seized hold of the king and put him in jail. Units of the National Guard that had, that had just last year slaughtered the Republicans, uh, now uh, either joined the assault or stood aside. The armed bodies of men came over to the radical Republican position. And so began a kind of period of dual power in effect, where the commune 
representing the Sanskrit masses, imposed its will on the Legislative Assembly, but hesitated to abolish it. Instead, it forced it to hold elections for a, for a, a convention based on universal suffrage. And the threat of counter-revolution, however, still remained despite this victory of the masses. And this prompted the opening of the terror. The Parisian masses took it upon themselves with the encouragement of the extreme left of the commune, namely Marat, to eliminate the aristocrats that were imprisoned in Paris because they feared that with, with advancing enemy troops, these aristocrats would rise up in the prisons and help uh, put down the revolution. And so in, in, uh, on, from the period of uh, 2nd to the 6th of December, 1,465 prisoners were, were killed following improvised revolutionary tribunals. Now we have to understand this is a desperate act of self-defense from the masses who feared the consequences of counter-revolution. And they were right to, to be fearful. The aristocracy was hell-bent on restoring itself and carrying out its own white terror as events in 1794 and then 1815 would prove. And so the September massacres served their purpose in cowing aristocratic conspiracy for now. Now, the day after the convention met, uh, it, it voted to abolish the monarchy. And it's from this uh, uh, that we, we kind of get the revolutionary calendar, uh, which was established uh, on, on the 21st of September. And so, you know, the, the calendar meant that this was the first day of year one of the French Republic. This was, however, in reality, the victory uh, that the masses obtained on, on August 10th, uh, 1792. And reflecting the upswing of the revolution, the, the Girondins now sat on the right of the assembly playing the role of the Fouillants that they had once opposed and representing the regretful bourgeois who wished they could roll back the clock and submit to their king. But the central question now facing the convention was what to do with him. That, you know, the mountain, which was the Jacobins and the Cordeliers, the left of the assembly, they pushed for the king's execution, recognizing that he was an irreconcilable enemy of the revolution. But the Girondins hoped to reconcile with the king. And just as the, uh, the Fouillants had, they did everything they could to prevent his death. The Girondin uh, position was untenable. They attempted to prevent regicide by arguing it would bring all of Europe against France, but it was they who would push for war in the first place. In the end, the, the debate was, was, was kind of decided by Robespierre's intervention, in which he said, if the king is not guilty, then those who dethroned him are, which in other words was a recognition that if either the king perishes or the revolution does, which was in reality, this had been the situation since 1789. And it was this simple fact that led the convention to vote for his execution, 380 votes to, to 310. And so on the 21st of January, 1793, Louis XVI was led between rows of the National Guard to the Place de Révolution. And as his, he as his head fell, the crowd screamed, long live the nation, long live the revolution. And the revolutionaries had now become regicides, deepening the international hostility to the revolution and deepening the war as a consequence. And by March, France was pretty much now at war with every major power in Europe, including Britain and Spain, who set about invasions. And the dynamic of the war radicalizing the revolution only deepened as a result. The convention now passed a series of measures to meet the immense threat to the revolution. And on the February 24th, uh, 1793, it established a levy of 300,000 men to meet the military threat and sent out deputies on missions throughout France to aid this. 
And this was to provoke a, a reaction. This is the first serious reaction involving uh, the masses, first in Brittany, which was quickly overcome, but in March, the Vendée rose en masse. And here we, we see the kind of the revolution's attacks against the Catholic Church. They created a deep discontent amongst layers of the peasantry, which the local aristocracy uh, was able to capitalize on. And conscription served as the spark. Uh, and rather than levying troops for the revolution, it spawned a counter-revolutionary army in this province. And this in turn, prompted uh, the convention to approve the establishment of the Committee for Public Safety on, the April, on April 6th, whose task was to root out the counter-revolution. The outfitting of a massive army combined with economic warfare from Europe's major powers to produce runaway inflation in the country. And it was this fact, coupled with, uh, with sans culotte pressure, that brought about the first maximum on grain, that is a price cap on grain, on, on the 4th of May. And this was the first inroad that the revolution made on bourgeois property. And the Girondins reacted to this. In the convention, they had the radical left uh, journalist, Hibert, uh, arrested, uh, and other, uh, radic along with other radical Jacobins uh, advocating for economic controls. And uh, on, on the 30th of May, local Girondins rose up against the convention and arrested local Jacobins in different towns across the country. And it became clear to the sans culotte masses that their interests would be thwarted at every turn by the Girondins. And this, along with the success of the first coalition's armies, again, bringing the threat of counter-revolution over the heads of, of the masses, prompted the insurrection of May 31st to the 2nd of June, 1793, that saw the masses invade the convention, storm into the convention, and demand the arrest of the Girardin ministers that, uh, and, and deputies that uh, were in the convention. And this brought the revolution to its apogee as the Jacobins firmly seized control of the situation, particularly through their control of the Committee of Public Safety that served in effect as a kind of revolutionary executive, a revolutionary dictatorship in, a, uh, in, in, in light of the, of the crisis. And it was this magnificent intervention of the masses led by the most consistent elements of the petty bourgeois Democrats that decisively completed the bourgeois revolution. It's throughout June that we see laws passed uh, selling emigre land, returning commons that had been appropriated before the revolution by the aristocracy to the peasants that put an end to all of the manorial rights, all of the obligations owed by the peasantry, not at an indemnity, but just like, uh, yeah, immediately saying that, the, that the, the aristocracy were no longer owed these things by the peasants, like carrying out the agrarian revolution in effect. And it was also at this moment that, that after a long kind of back and forth in the various assemblies that the revolution had produced, that slavery was decisively abolished by the Jacobins. But in, 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 like, as a result of all of this, civil war now raged in the country, orchestrated by the Girondins in Marseille, Lyon, and Normandy. The French Revolution faced a perilous situation, and it is in this context that the terror was waged. The law of suspects was passed by, uh, on, on the, uh, by the convention on September 17th, allowing for anyone considered to be an enemy of the Republic to be arrested, trialed, and executed. Now, this is, of course, an extreme measure, but it was absolutely necessary to save the revolution uh, from oblivion. And of course, the bourgeois cries a lot of crocodile tears over the deaths that uh, were brought about by the terror. But where are those tears for the thousands of peasants that were put to death in the centuries of absolutist rule at the behest of the aristocracy? Where are those tears for all of the laborers that died in the cities so that some bourgeois spiv could turn a profit on the grain that he exported? I never see them shed tears for that. And of course, we know that it's utter hypocrisy because the very same ladies and gentlemen 
that uh, the, the cry horror at uh, the events of the terror are now cheerleading the, the, the genocide that's taking place in Gaza right now. Um, so yeah, that is our answer to that. What we, what we understand is that the, the terror was a historic uh, necessity, right, to complete the bourgeois revolution. And it is from, from September 1793 that extraordinary measures were taken by Robespierre's revolutionary government in order to turn the tide of war. The state took, a, took it upon itself to organize war production it built an enormous factory for the time um, in Paris that produced 700 rifles a day. And astonishing results were achieved in the refinement of saltpeter, which is a kind of key component of gunpowder, which France had hitherto had to entirely import before the revolution. Now it sent workers out throughout the countryside uh, to, to find kind of this, this, uh, this, this material and established 28 state-run refineries to overcome the shortage. That's obviously not to overstate this, uh, you know, this didn't herald a development of a planned economy, but it was a, a major inroad uh, into bourgeois property. The state was taking it upon itself to plan uh, and organize war production, in effect, the, pr the production of munitions, arms, rifles, and all the rest of it, which is, it was a remarkable um, shift in, 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 in the situation. And the successes of this war economy, I think, they do reveal the potential in planning as early as the 1790s. Yet the limits of this were also quickly exposed because France's production in this period was dominated by cottage industry. It was scattered, of course. This were at the beginnings of the development of, of capitalist production, not uh, at its end when, of course, socialism does become uh, possible. And so the objective limits of the productive forces with capitalism in its infancy, uh, yeah, it barred that path. There was no, you know, the revolution could go no further along these lines. And crucially, for Robespierre and most of the Jacobins, these measures were temporary expedients. Right? Ideologically, they, they remained committed to the rights of bourgeois property, just as this, the, the kind of same token was made with constitutional liberty. That was only to be temporarily suspended as a necessary evil. That's how they viewed these inroads into bourgeois property. Now, arrayed against all the great powers of Europe, the convention passed now a levy en masse, drafting every 18 to 25-year-old man for military service. And the sans-culottes and the enraged leaders, this is kind of the left Jacobins, uh, such as Hubert, uh, continued to agitate for the maximum. And with the state taking war production uh, upon itself and the obligation to feed now a truly monumental army uh, by, uh, you know, by the standards of the day, it made every sense to, to introduce a maximum, a maximum sorry, for every uh, commodity that was, that was vital to the war effort. So a huge plethora of commodities uh, were now regulated by the state. The, the, the maximum price was set, and this was passed on the 29th of September. So you can see further inroads into bourgeois property. <laughs> so what, what, what we can see from this is that the process of the war radicalizing the revolution, because, it, it bring, uh, because the, it, the imminent threat of counter-revolution over the heads of the masses, and in turn the sans-culottes and the radical petty bourgeois respond with the decisive measures to beat back that threat. And these radical measures did help, help to turn the tide of war. Uh, Leon, which had been uh, like uh, went over to counter-revolution uh, with the Girondins at the helm, was recaptured in October. In December, the Vendée uprising was largely crushed, and uh, Toulon, which had defected uh, to the British, uh, was also recaptured by a little-known Corporal Napoleon Bonaparte. And as the threat of counter-revolution abated, the contradiction of a bourgeois revolution that had made inroads into bourgeois property came to the surface. The bourgeois, after kind of now four or five years of, of, uh, of kind of stress and strain, was now desperate to put an end to, to it all, right? They were desperate, having conquered the aristocracy, uh, to, 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 to kind of get on with the, the business 
of enriching themselves in effect, with enjoying the gains that they had made. The peasants too had now gained all they could out of the revolution. The agrarian reform had, had, had been brought about in effect. And so with this, we now see that the kind of pendulum of the revolution beginning to swing uh, to, the, to the right and so on. And, and this is particularly exacerbated by the, the, the kind of lifting of the whip of, of counter-revolution. The class balance of forces is, is shifting steadily to the right. And now Robespierre, who had lent on the masses to, to strike blows against the Girondins in order to achieve the bourgeois democratic republic, now uh, saw the, the greatest threat to that bourgeois republic uh, from the left. And he, he, in March 1794, with the Enragers continuing to make radical demands for property redistribution and so on, um, Robespierre turned against it. He felt confident that the Republic had been, had been secured and he had the Ebertists, the, the these kind of left, uh, left radicals, uh, arrested and guillotined. Um, like in, in, a, in a kind of dark day for the, for the revolution in effect. And this marked the beginning really of the downswing uh, of this revolution because the sans-culottes who had uh, heroically saved the revolution at time and time again were now thoroughly demoralized by the sight of their leaders being put to the guillotine by the man they saw as one of their own by Robespierre and so on. And now Robespierre attempted immediately to try and balance against this, having struck left, he then struck right, almost immediately arresting uh, many of the indulgence, the kind of right-wing Jacobins uh, under Danton and so on, and putting them to, to the guillotine as well. But it would prove uh, not, not, it wouldn't prove enough basically to save him. And, and at this point, Robespierre is basically suspended in midair, having cut away his support from the masses uh, and having done so much damage to, the, to, to bourgeois property uh, in, in, their, in the interest of the masses, he had no one to lean upon. And the, 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 the kind of right of the convention uh, sensed his fragility. And with the exhaustion and demoralization of the masses, the right now moved decisively against Robespierre. On the, 20, uh, on the, the 27th of July, the right of the convention had Robespierre arrested. The commune declared itself in response to this in insurrection, but in reality, the sans-culottes uh, remained passive, and Robespierre's uh, attacks against them had proved fatal to his own position. Robespierre and his allies made a kind of farcical stand in the Tuileries, where a few thousand National Guard gathered, uh, but even this small force whittled away as time passed. The following day, Robespierre, under whose leadership the bourgeois revolution uh, had been completed, was executed at the behest of the bourgeoisie itself. So this process was, this is what we, what we come to know as the Thermidorian reaction, because that was the, July was the Thermidor in the French revolutionary calendar. And so, and as a consequence of this, this overturning of, of the most decisive elements of the revolution, all inroads into bourgeois property were overturned. The maximum was immediately repealed. The war industries were privatized. And the result was a catastrophe for the masses as, as prices skyrocketed. But of course, it was a boon for the bourgeois who made, it, who made a killing. And the revolution now was in a, a kind of unrelenting ebb as a consequence of this. The Grey Directory uh, took the helm and the political clubs were suppressed. Universal suffrage was overturned with the Constitution of 1795. Yet the Directory was never able to fully impose its will. It faced continuous uprisings from the left with things like the conspiracy of, of equals uh, in, uh, led by Babeuf, and from the right with the resumption of the Vendée and, and calls for calls for the restoration of, of the monarchy and so on. And so the, the calls for order that had brought about uh, the, the kind of overthrow of Robespierre only continued to grow uh, over the process, over the years that the directory led France. And the whole process culminated in the end 
with the coup of Napoleon Bonaparte on the 9th of November, 1799, which would eventually see him declare himself emperor in 1804. So 15 years on from the beginning of the revolution, it seemed that on the surface that everything had come full circle, right? That, you know, having got rid of a king, here was another one uh, in, in his place. And so what was it all for? Well, despite the fact that on the surface that you, you have this kind of restoration of the political forms of, uh, of feudalism, the French Revolution had, had undertaken a thorough transformation of society. It had cast aside all remnants of feudalism. It redistributed land to the, to the peasantry and to the bourgeois, completing the task, it completed the task of forging a French national state and national market. Uh, and none of this was overturned by Napoleon, nor could he even if he'd wanted to. And the bourgeoisie had therefore irrevocably triumphed over the aristocracy. Now the French Revolution continues to be a source of inspiration for revolutionaries today. Yet today, it, it is the bourgeois order that has become rotten, that is so clearly holding back uh, the development of society. And the revolutionary determination and the elan of the sans-culotte masses, which anticipated that of their successors, the proletariat, uh, you know, continues to be an enormous inspiration for all revolutionaries. But unlike their predecessors, the proletariat is not only capable, but must conquer power for itself and transform society along socialist lines. And at this phenomenal uh, festival, we have ourselves channeled the revolutionary youth of Besancon, whose battalion motto read, when the old guard gives up, the youth will take over. We have a world to win, comrades. The revolutionary youth will take over. That brings us to the end of another episode of Marx's Voice. Thanks for tuning in. But before you go, a few announcements. If we can learn anything from the history of the French Revolution, it's that a party is required to channel and organize the revolutionary fury of the masses. That is what we are building. In under three months, we will host the founding Congress of the Revolutionary Communist Party. And our aim is to build an army of 2,000 communists ready for a crisis labor government and the class struggle that will provoke. So if you are a communist, it is urgent that you join and build your party. So get stuck in by going to communist.red to sign up, to arm yourself with copies of our paper, The Communist, and to donate to our party launch fund of £60,000, which will help us lay a firm foundation for planting the red flag in Britain. Link in the show notes down below. But we are not striving to build an army of rural recruits. It is up to you to steal yourself through the building of the revolutionary organization into a communist fighter ready for the class battles ahead. Someone with the audacity of Danton, the far-sightedness of Marat, and the unshakable will of Robespierre. But even more important than moral qualities, we possess what the Jacobins lacked, the clear-sighted ideas of Marxism, which represent the conclusions distilled from the whole history of the workers' movement. And nobody embodies the fusion of communist ideas with the fighting qualities of a revolutionary better than Lenin. So begin your study by getting a copy of the latest In Defense of Marxism magazine, our theoretical quarterly, with articles on Lenin's approach to philosophy, his struggle against Stalinism, and his role as a revolutionary communist leader. Link to subscribe in the show notes. Now that's all for this week, but we'll be back next time with another episode of Marxist Voice, podcast of the IMT in Britain. <laughs>